Welcome to The Drill Down, the business stories behind stocks on the move. I'm Corey Johnson. Today is Friday, May 14th. Well, just ahead, DoorDash couldn't make a dime during the pandemic, so does it have a shot in a post-pandemic world? Plus, accounting problems at Plug Power. And our guest brings us a look at an insurer that he says has some big profit growth ahead of it. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. Era's AI-powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter. That's era.com. And you can listen to The Drill Down on any of your favorite podcast platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeart, TuneIn, Podbean. But hit that subscribe button, follow us, and catch every show. And remember to join The Drill Down on Twitter and Instagram at DrillDownPod. Connect with us on our website, bizpod.net, and let us know what companies you want us to talk about. All right, I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down. We tell the business stories behind stocks on the move. And joining me, as always, producer extraordinaire Isaac Webster. Isaac, what are the most important stories in the world of business today? Corey, here are the top three business stories on Wall Street today. Retail sales in the U.S. didn't budge much in April. Shoppers pulled back on buying goods while spending more on services. Now, some economists are seeing this as a potential sign of a rocky recovery. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens now after the most recent mandate to get rid of masks for the vaccinated. Um, I got a sense of a real change of sort of the mood of the city of San Francisco yesterday. We'll see if that uh, means more retail sales. You can feel that shift right here in L.A. as well. Now, the hacking group tied to the Colonial Pipeline attack is calling it quits. Darkside told its associates that it was shutting down, and all this according to security research firms. Yeah, or Darkside wants us to think that they're not going to be doing this anymore and that uh, they might still be out there. We'll see. It was It's such an interesting hack because it was hacking as a service where the, the guys who created the ransomware essentially offered it out to anyone that wanted to launch the attack. They just wanted to cut whoever was behind this thing. Fascinating. It's crummy, a business, isn't it? Scandalous business, isn't it? Yep. Now, the co-creator of Dogecoin, now, am I pronouncing this right? It's Dogecoin, right? Not That's right. Dogecoin? No, Dogecoin. The or doggy coin. Or doggy coin. <laughs> the co-creator of Dogecoin is calling Elon Musk a, quote, self-absorbed grifter. Now, this comes after Musk tweeted that Tesla would stop accepting Bitcoin. That tweet has been deleted, by the way. Jackson Palmer is the co-creator of Dogecoin that I'm talking about. Now, Elon Musk's net worth has dropped $25 billion after he said Tesla wouldn't take the cryptocurrency. And that's according to the Bloomberg Billionaires Index. Yeah, I know Jackson Palmer a little bit. He's a interesting, great guy. He actually works at Adobe full-time while doing a lot of crypto stuff on the side. You know, I think the bigger story today, and this is all kind of a distraction from what's going on at Tesla, um, there was a, the, uh, another car crash in California. It was determined that the driver uh, was driving using autopilot while involved in a fatal, fatal crash and crashing into a um, – uh, a semi that was uh, on its side, uh, according to reports uh, from the Associated Press. So I think uh, maybe the real serious issues around Elon Musk and Twitter are people dying while they have this autopilot engaged. There have now been a, a handful of things, according to press reports. Now, Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? All right, let's look at Plug Power. Plug Power. Plug Plow Power trades under 
P-L-U-G, plug. Shares rose 11% Friday, and they've risen by over 500% over the last 12 months. What's going on with plug power? I wanted you to do plug power like an animal house where they do pledge pin, pledge pins, plug power. (laughs) Oh, my God. All right. Well, plug power. Look, this is a controversial company and one that is, uh, like many, long on promise and thus far short on results. It's also a favorite of the Wall Street bets Reddit crowd. Uh, the stock was at seventy bucks a share just a few months ago, and as you mentioned, now it's uh, you know what's it, like twenty four dollars now a third of that price. The company makes hydrogen fuel powered batteries for forklifts. Okay, and that makes it a fourteen billion dollar company. Fork forklift batteries? Are you serious? Yeah, that's it. Forklifts. Okay, uh, they're supplying forklift batteries to the likes of Amazon and BMW and Walmart. Well, someone's got to make those batteries, right? Those are big they've customers. Been, those are big, big I mean, customers, hundred yeah. percent. Uh, they are, but or they could be. But the thing is, to get those customers, at least in the case of Amazon and Walmart, Plug Power had to pay Amazon and Walmart. Specifically, Plug Power giving Amazon and Walmart stock warrants or the right to buy piles of Plug Power stock if they made $50 million orders or a series of $50 million. So if they don't make the payments, they don't get the stock. But here's the thing. The payments would total about only $200 million. And how much is the stock worth? Uh, For each of the companies, if they were to make the $200 million payments at the current stock price, be about a billion dollars worth of stock. So they pay $200 million, they get about $2 billion. Or I'm sorry, if the combined total, they were to pay $400 million, they get about $2 billion in stock after cashing in those warrants. So there's a, a great incentive for them to place those orders because they'll get so much more back in value for this company. I'm thinking that maybe I need to get a forklift battery. Um, yeah, well, if they'd pay you, you know, a, a big return to do so. you know, <laughs> Exactly. Uh, well, you know, so today's uh, in their announcement this morning, the company, they announced earnings. They said that they had resolved, they had a ton of accounting problems uh, for prior quarters, and they said they uh, um, uh, they were they'd fixed those problems. They were able to record, report out the new the new quarter uh, that they just under uh, expensed a number of of costs that should have gone into gross expenses, uh, gross uh, uh, costs, and, and would have um, hurt their gross revenue um, uh, numbers they reported in the past. They also said they were going to vest all of Amazon's warrants right now, putting the expense in fact at the end of last year. So they would put all those expenses in their income statement. And they, the only reason they were citing for doing that was so that they could report bigger revenues going forward. Uh, it was really just a matter of wanting to make the numbers look uh, cleaner and bigger in the future. Here's CEO Andy Marsh. Every product that Plug touches, we're engaged with Amazon. And the only reason we accelerate the warrants was because we saw that there was uh, benefits to our shareholders and being able to read our income statement much more clear in the future because the value of those warrants uh, were set in a point in time. So when I look at it, uh, Amazon now, it, Amazon is an incredible opportunity way beyond anything we've done to date. The accelerating of the warrants we did because we thought it would make it easier for the reader of our financial statements going forward. Uh, Now, in the past year, gross billings for Amazon, I think, Paul, were north of $100 million. And so, you know, we expect continual growth with Amazon. And, you know, one of our 
one of our key, key partners for the business. So again, they took the expense of the warrants so they could show a higher profit later. The way they used to have to record it, the, the cost of issuing the warrants was deducted against the revenues that from what Amazon paid them. So now it's going to look like that cost wasn't associated with the next sales that they get from Amazon, but it's um, uh, it was really it's it's nothing illegal about it, but it's an accounting maneuver to make the future profits look bigger than they actually are. Corey, what is your next drill down? Let's take a look at DoorDash. DoorDash trades under Dash, D-A-S-H. Shares rose 22% on Friday. What's going on with DoorDash? Well, you're a big food delivery guy. Yes, you guys already get a lot of food delivered mm-hmm. at your house. Yeah, we have, we're a Postmates family. I'm not a big DoorDash or Postmates or food delivery guy, but uh, revenues uh, were up huge, as you would imagine, during a pandemic. So on a year-over-year basis for the quarter they just reported, uh, they saw 198% growth in revenues to $1.1 billion. Total orders were up even more to 219% uh, increase in orders or 329 million orders. Despite all that growth, DoorDash lost $110 million. Now, Wall Street seemed to like the adjusted profit. If you take out what they pay the employees in stock, if you take out some reserves, you take out some other costs that they actually had, they, they would have made a profit so they reported an adjusted profit. Uh, can I just do that? Can I just adjust away all the costs I don't like? No, that's not you how You think it works the IRS would like that? Yeah, no, they don't like that. They can't do that. But ah, okay. DoorDash can do that. Uh, they can talk about their adjusted profit. And their adjusted profit of $43 million in this quarter was better than the adjusted loss of $70 million a year ago. But the company predicted it would have an adjusted profit for all of 2021, or at least break even to as much as a $300 million adjusted profit. Adjusted. This should be a drinking game. Every time on the show, we are talking about a company that has adjusted any of its numbers, we should drink. Oh, and we'd be hammered by the second drill down. <laughs> uh, look, uh, adjusted is not real. But what is real is that there is going to be an end to this pandemic and people are getting outdoors and they're not going to be ordering all the time. And, you know, this last year might have been the best imaginable or even unimaginable environment for a company like DoorDash. And to me, if they if they can't make money in a pandemic, I don't know if they're ever going to make money, but that's just me. I mean, we'll see. But so in listening to the conference call today, I did hear a note of caution in the phone uh, when they warned that their summer results are going to be worse than the quarter that they just reported uh, and that they've never reported anything like that before. Uh, here is the CFO, Prabir Adarkar. Starting about... April and, and going all the way through to Labor Day, uh, usually as the weather improves, we see consumers, you know, go dine in. And that, that behavior is generally consistent across both new customers that were recently acquired as well as, um, as well as, uh, existing customers that have been on the platform for a while. It's just, it's just behavior that we tend to see as, as weather improves and, 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 and people want to, to go out a little bit more. So, you know, you don't see it in our historical numbers, partly because of the, the rapid pace of customer acquisition. But if you look at it on a cohort level, it's, it's there both for new and existing cohorts. So, you know, let's drill down there, right? So what they're saying is we've never reported a decline in results in the summer. You can't see it when you look back in our numbers, but we will see a decline this summer. Now, they're not saying it's because of the pandemic. They're saying because of the summer. Okay. Maybe that's true. I can't imagine that if, if, if the summer is a headwind 
and the end of the pandemic, in my estimation, is a headwind that the next quarter is going to be gangbusters for these guys, adjusted or not adjusted. That's certainly not how Wall Street saw it today. But for me, this company looks like it's uh, it's entering into uh, a series of risky environments for them. I got to ask, is the problem here that DoorDash has too many competitors? Or where, where are these costs coming from? Well, it's an expensive business to run, right? Yeah. It's just an expensive business to run. It's why they slap all these fees on the on the restaurants. Um, they've got to pay the drivers, and you know, and as we know, it's it's hard getting drivers right now for Uber and Lyft, uh, and it's probably hard for everybody in 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 the business where they've got they've got uh, drivers doing deliveries. So you know, we'll see what we get from these guys. Clearly, uh, Wall Street thinks uh, they are seeing less risk than the drill down podcast saw in the results. But uh, I think it's one certainly to keep an eye on. Corey, what is your next drill down? Airbnb. Airbnb. Airbnb trades under ABNB. Shares rose over 3% Friday, but they've lost 4% since the start of the year. What's going on with Airbnb? We had a nice chat with Lee Drogan about this just a week ago about Airbnb and his bullish notions for the company. The company based right here in San Francisco went public in December, reported $10.3 billion in gross bookings in the quarter ending in March. That's up 52% from the year before. Uh, Revenues were up 5% to $887 million. Now, they found that long-term stays increased, which I thought was really interesting. Their offering was different. Uh, A year ago and the year before that, about 14% of their business were stays longer than 28 days. Now that's 24% of their business, uh, a quarter of their business, is people staying more than a month. So people using Airbnb differently. Um, My friend, whom we call the Emoji Coach, she and her boyfriend abandoned their New York City apartments a year ago and just kind of moved from location to location. It looked like they were, you know, they were in South Carolina. They were in Park City. They were in Sausalito here in the San Francisco Bay. They kind of used Airbnb as a, as a way to kind of live nice, new, exciting places since they didn't have to be in the office for a year. So the question, I think, is, and it was put to Brian Chesky, the CEO of Airbnb, when are people going to get back to old-fashioned urban travel, going to cities, staying there for maybe shorter amounts of time, business travel. Um, And what he had to say was that urban travel growth rates have been increasing already. They've increased every single month this year. Here's what he had to say uh, Thursday night on their earnings call. We are seeing that as restrictions lift and cross-border begins, more people travel to cities. We're also seeing that the nature of travel to cities is changing. For example, more and more people are booking longer term stays in cities. So the length of stay is going up. And one of the things we know is that the longer you stay somewhere, the more you're inclined to stay in a home. So I think that as um, restrictions lift in countries, as vaccinations rise, we think this is a significant tailwind to both urban travel and cross-border travel. So we're very, very bullish. It's a little hard to pinpoint, but I think the comments from the head of CDC today, the lifting of restrictions across Europe, these are all really, really good signs. There's no reason this wouldn't be a huge tailwind to urban travel and cross-border. So I heard that's kind of a pretty bullish call and a notion that maybe the nature of travel changing is changing into the benefit of Airbnb and and away from the Hiltons and, and Marriott's of the world. 
All right, our guest Chuck Lieberman is going to join us. He's the Chief Investment Officer at Advisors Capital Management. He's going to help us drill down in an interesting insurance company, Lincoln Financial. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. ERA's event access and monitoring intelligence platform improves earnings season and the investor events in between through comprehensive calendar tracking, one-click event access, dynamic monitors, multicasting, and more. Powered by an advanced language processing engine which consumes 40,000-plus investor events annually across 10,000-plus global equities. Learn more at ERA.com. And remember to join the Drill Down on Twitter and Instagram at DrillDownPod. Link up with us on the Business Podcast Network on LinkedIn. And check out our website, bizpod.net. Let us know what stocks we should be drilling down on. All right, today we're drilling down on a company called Lincoln Financial. And joining us, Chuck Lieberman, the Chief Investment Officer at Advisors Capital Management. Um, Chuck, I must confess, I had never looked at Lincoln Financial before uh, preparing for today's show. Uh, and this looks like a, an insurance company who's you know, principally in the business of life insurance. Is that is that right? Yeah, although they have an enormous annuity business. Uh, the annuity yeah. business is very profitable for them as well. Now, uh, of all the times to be in the life insurance business, I would argue that during a pandemic is not a good time, that people have this unfortunate habit of dying, which isn't good if they have life insurance policies for the life insurance company. And I would say that you're very astute. Um, that- <laughs> I mean, and I don't want to make light of, of the horrible tragedies of everybody, including me, who's lost people during COVID. But again, for a life insurance company, that was probably a pretty crummy year. Yeah, that's right. Their earnings were depressed um, and low interest rates hurt them as well. Um, and yet uh, the stock has actually done extremely well. Uh, earnings are down a bit, but uh, they're likely to rebound very sharply in th- this year uh, to about nine bucks a share. Uh, we're talking about a $70 stock with $9 a share in earnings. Uh, next year, uh, obviously, uh, the pandemic is receding already. Uh, masks have been dropped. Uh, deaths have already declined pretty sharply. Uh, and next year, they're likely- At least to in the U.S. In the U.S., right. Yeah. And next year, they're likely to make 11 bucks a share. Uh, and in 2023, at least 12 bucks a share. Uh, so there's tremendous growth in earnings. But the stock is very, very cheap, even though it's had a stellar year. Uh, well, I mean, earnings are down significantly in the last year uh, and across a lot of their different products. As I mentioned, life insurance has not done well for them in the last year. That's right. But you buy on the basis of future earnings, not on the basis of history. There are plenty of companies that had great earnings historically, and then their business disappeared. Uh, you, that's not a stock you would want to buy into. Uh, this is one where the opposite is happening. Uh, their earnings are rebounding. They were depressed, um, and they are resuming uh, stock buybacks. So their earnings are going to get a boost just on that basis as well. Well, so let's 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 back up to a thirty thousand foot view and really look at what this company is and what they do. When I think of insurance companies, I think of the giants, right? The the, the Geico's of the world, you know, parts of Berkshire Hathaway, Allstate, Prudential. Um, these guys aren't that. They aren't, and it looks like the biggest difference to me, it seems, is that they don't they don't do auto. Yeah, they're basically, as you suggested, a life company. Uh, the universe of, of insurance is largely broken up into uh, life and uh, property and casualty. Uh, so Geico, Progressive, they do property and casualty, autos, homes, uh, 
things like that. Life companies tend to do mostly life insurance, uh, and Lincoln is one of those. Uh, so it's more like MetLife uh, or Prudential, um, although Prudential also does some uh, property and casualty. Is that a good business to be in? I mean, uh, uh, it seems like the, the sales channel um, for life in particular, for life insurance and annuities, is kind of antiquated through, through at least for a lot of other companies, it has been through dealers, it has been through sort of financial advisors and so on, and with kind of high fees for the consumer. And maybe, you know, uh, uh, like I said, not the kind of modern way that people are buying anything these days online and everything else. Well, the old way of doing it is still very, very uh, successful, very profitable. Um, these guys could adapt if uh, the business mode of, of selling life insurance and annuities changes. Uh, annuities are in particular are not a product that people go out to buy. They're typically a product that uh, gets sold. Um, and you've got to have a sales force to sell your product. Uh, and of course, these guys and everybody else who sells annuities do, in fact, have that kind of a, a sales force. So uh, you're right. Um, there are other ways to buy insurance products. Uh, a lot of insurance products increasingly are going to be sold online, uh, but they can do that as well. Well, and talk to me about that network. How do they sell these products? If uh, you're an advisor, uh, uh, a financial advisor at a BD, uh, an independent broker-dealer firm, um, you can sell annuity products and uh, you earn pretty fat commissions. Um, the products themselves lock the investors or the, the uh, insur- uh, people who are buying the insurance, they lock them in for a period of time so that the insurance company knows that it can earn back the big commissions that it pays out. Um, so it's not a great product, but conceptually, the product makes perfectly good sense because you're spreading the risk of living a long time and running out of assets. And the annuity basically guarantees a cash flow for you for the rest of your life. For that consumer, right. But for the insurance company, um, they've obviously just got to charge enough so that they can uh, uh, moderate that risk across, across a lot of uh, people who buy that. Um, you know, the the thing that's always been hard for me uh, as an investor trying to understand insurance companies is, uh, and I always promise the listener that this show is not about investments so much as it's about understanding business. But as an investor, when I would look at insurance companies and banks for that matter, I could never really know the quality of the product that they had underwritten. I wouldn't understand if they were, you know, if they grew their business by writing dumb policies that were going to come back to bite them someday. And that you know, you look at a, the, Warren Buffett has always warned us that that insurance companies go bad by writing insurance when they shouldn't, and that not writing policies is the discipline that actually makes the most money over the long term in the insurance business. Uh, how do you, when you look at Lincoln Financial, uh, how are you trying to assess the quality of their underwriting? It varies. The quality of the underwriting depends on the product that's being sold. So in the property and casualty side, which is what Buffett was talking about, it's much more difficult. You've got to be aware of, for example, what the frequency of storms is in Florida. And you might not want to take that risk. With life policies, uh, actuarial tables are pretty as well established by now. Uh, If anything, actual uh, expected life expectancies have been increasing because people are living longer, healthcare is getting better. Uh, the pandemic, right. obviously, uh, more, the pandemic, car safety is better, 
pandemic affected, obviously. But but what they charge for that, however, you know, we we, we might be able to pencil out how long someone's going to live, but how much you charge for that insurance um, is is the sort of key thing there, right? That's right. And that's why the level of interest rates matters a lot, because they take the premiums that are paid and they invest those premiums. And so when interest rates go down, that hurts them because they're earning a lower rate of return on those dollars. But when interest rates rebound, uh, they earn more and uh, that makes the stock somewhat sensitive to the level of interest rates and they're correlated with the level of interest rates. So in the same way that we've seen a lot of uh, reaction, even in the last week in the stock market, to fears of inflation, which could lead the Fed to want to cool the economy by raising rates, that, that kind of thing can be good for a company like Lincoln Financial. Exactly. They react very positively to higher inflation and the risk of higher interest rates. Uh, it works in two ways. In one way, it increases the nominal rate of return on their investments because they can buy bonds with higher yields, but it also reduces the buying power of the insurance that they've committed to pay. So if you're getting, you know, $100,000 as a payment for a life policy, um, that $100,000 becomes less and less significant as inflation eats up, eats away at that value. If you're writing new policies, you've got new dollars coming in the door uh, at the currently at the at the inflated rate of whatever that date is. Exactly, that's exactly right. Uh, it's it's interesting too uh, for this company. Is is there a lot of M and A in this this uh, world? I don't follow insurance that much. Uh, there is some, um, and that's I would call it a tertiary reason for considering investing in this company. Uh, they have a market cap of about $13 billion, so they are what I would consider bite-sized. Uh, a larger company could easily come along and take them out, uh, but I never make uh, investments on that basis. Uh, the probability of getting taken out is too low, and so you really have to look at the fundamentals of the business, the earnings prospects, uh, and if it's a good investment, then if it gets taken out, that's a cherry on top of the ice cream soda. Um, as a, as this company, you know, kind of looks to the future of their business, how important is that dealer network? What do they do to sort of stay uh, connected with the people who will ultimately be selling their policies? As a, uh, a fan of the New York Giants, I'm not happy that they sponsor the Philadelphia Eagles. Um, <laughs> you know, they, they do a lot. No of one's happy with anything associated with the Eagles ever. It's part of it's part of Philly. Uh, yeah, that's true. Uh, but, you know, they advertise, they pay these big fat commissions on various insurance policies. So they've got a, a sales force that's nicely incentivized to sell their products. And where do you expect growth to come from from this company and how do they sort of imagine it? It's coming in effect uh, both internally as well as externally. So just on the basis of the dividend that they pay and the stock buybacks that they're engaging in, because they're very profitable and the stock is very, very cheap. And so they can buy back stock and it's immediately accretive. And so they're buying back stock at the rate of about $500 million or thereabouts per year. Uh, that's about 4% of the market capitalization of the firm. On top of that, you get a 2.5% dividend. And then after that, there's growth in the business. 
And so even if they get only a few percent worth of growth, you've got a 10% return. Uh, and it should be better than that. But just uh, just organic growth, just telling their sales staff, hey, go out and sell a little bit more. It's no sort of big changes going on at the company. The financial engineering interests me less, but the, just motivating that sales staff to go out and sell more stuff, that's how they grow? That's right. And they can do some... Uh, some things technically, for example, one of the things that they've uh, done or they're thinking about doing, they can offload some of their risk. They can effectively sell some of their business to somebody else, to a reinsurance company of sorts. And then they take out a lot of capital. They take a lot of that profit out up front and then either buy back more stock or it enables them to underwrite more business. And also for these guys, I mean, it's, it seems like the, it's, it's a plain Jane kind of business where they're not trying to, for example, achieve better investment returns by going outside of the bond market to invest that, that float. They do a little bit of that. All of these companies do some of that. Uh, so they'll have a little bit of money in, uh, with hedge funds and in all kinds of alternative investments uh, because those kind of products will generate higher returns. Um, they may be less liquid, but uh, so a company like Lincoln can't put a ton of money into uh, those kind of investments, but they can certainly put in some, uh, and they're behaving just like any long-lived institutional money manager that has to think about uh, its obligations, uh, what exactly uh, does it expect to pay out and when, and when do they need liquidity. So that's all part of money management. All right. Well, Chuck, uh, thanks for bringing this company to our attention. Lincoln Financials, one we'll keep an eye on. Chuck Lieberman is the Chief Investment Officer at Advisors Capital Management. Chuck, how can our uh, listeners uh, follow what's going on over there at Advisors Capital? They can always look at our website, acmwealth.com. All right. Great stuff. Chuck Lieberman, thank you very much. Up next, a drill down bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. This one's for kids. That's right. The first ever drill down bite for kids. It's one number that tells us a whole lot. Remember, kids, it's a number. Lincoln Financial was named for which president? I'll have that answer for you after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA, the equity platform with event intelligence and insights for fundamental investors. Seamlessly connect to any earnings call and take advantage of ERA's AI-powered tools. Work faster and smarter with ERA.com. And subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeart, TuneIn, Podbean, you name it. But please hit that subscribe button, follow us, and catch every show. And remember to join the Drill Down on Twitter and Instagram, at DrillDownPod. Link up with us on LinkedIn, and check out our website, bizpod.net. All right, this one is for the kids, the Drill Down Bite for kids. Lincoln Financial was named for... Abraham Lincoln, and he was our 16th president. That's right, 16 is that drill-down bite, that one number that means a whole lot. <laughs> Isaac, you may remember, was after James Buchanan, who was oh, the yeah. 15th president, mm-hmm. before uh, Abraham Lincoln's second vice president, Andrew Johnson, was our 17th president, no relation to me. Uh, 16, pretty good president at Lincoln. Yeah, pretty good. Yeah. A lot of stuff named after him. Also true for good reason. <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening to The Drill Down. We do appreciate it. I'm Corey Johnson. This show is edited by Ben Wilson. Isaac Webster is our executive producer. Maggie Renshaw, our senior producer. Alicia Alban is our chief of staff, and she's awesome. 
Samantha Fennell, our head of ad sales, is also awesome. Our theme song, Moving Average, is by Romeo and the Paperclips. Thanks to Yorn and the fantastic crew at Shack 15. The Drill Down is a production of the Business Podcast Network. Ready?